Do they have their uh, a rule on classic baseball players' butt slaps? You have to use hand sanitizer after uh, each butt slap, <laughs> which you should do anyway. Welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is May 19th, 2020, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. Joining me from a sunny but windy New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hey, Neil. Is it windy? I can't confirm because I have not been outside in months. Um, I, one of these days the I should open? actually... That's I how I record. Knew. I do have the window open. Um, yeah, but one of these days I should record out on our um, our patio. I don't feel like our producer would like that very the much. The sound quality would would be disastrous, no doubt. Yeah, no. We Train can get noises. That. Yeah, you know. honking. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, and from a sunny Los Angeles, 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff. Hello, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. I assume it's sunny there. The sun has risen. Oh, it's definitely sunny. <laughs> okay, so... You guys, there were sports happening this weekend. I know. It was live. amazing. It was weird. Yeah, what? it was weird. Okay, so we had... Sports are we back. Had, we had soccer in Germany. We had NASCAR. And we had a weird golf thing that wasn't actually golf, but it was golf. Did you guys watch any of it? Well, I was going to say, how is it possible that of those three, the one that I watched was the German soccer? That makes no sense, and yet is true. Well, I, really, it, was, it makes no sense. It was, some the, sense. <laughs> it was in some ways the most real sporting event. I mean, the golf certainly wasn't real, but it was nice to see golf um, again in any format. I mean, you saw yourself play golf last week, right? <laughs> yeah, and and that was more fun than watching, uh, you know, Matthew Wolf in shorts play uh, skins with uh, Ricky Fowler, but. Look, I'll take anything. I'm not turning down sports at this point. The 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 two weirdest things about the golf, which I did actually watch some of, were the guys in shorts. That was bizarre to see that in a, a televised golf event. And then the fact that they were carrying their own bags, which again should not be weird. That's like my normal interaction with golf where I'm carrying my own bag, right? I know. But it was weird to see it. It was weird to yeah. see the four of them sort of just walk down the you know, down a a fairway or whatever. It, it was a lot hands. of, you remember how like Us Weekly or used to have those pages? Like celebrities, they're just like us. They go <laughs> to the supermarket. It was a lot like that. Like like DJ marked his ball on the green with a, with a T and everyone was like, oh, I do that. On today's show, we'll revisit The Last Dance and talk about how well it worked, both as entertainment and documentary. We'll discuss a set of proposed NFL rule changes that would incentivize teams to hire minority coaches. And finally, we'll be joined by a special guest for a Sticky Wicket edition of our Rabbit Hole of the Week. Sunday brought an end to ESPN's 10-part documentary, The Last Dance, which told the story of the Chicago Bulls' 1997-98 championship run. We wanted to revisit the series and, and talk about what we took away from it and also how well it holds up as not just an incredibly well-made piece of entertainment, but also as a documentary. There's been a ton of praise for the series, of course, but not everyone is entirely positive about its portrayal of Michael Jordan. Pablo Torre on ESPN's Highly Questionable had this to say about the series when it premiered. And so for me, I love the Jordan that we will get, you will get, but I also really hate the effect that this sort of archetype has had on our society, on our culture. Like this alpha male bleephole is the guy that so many people in high school, in government, at office jobs are cosplaying as because they confuse what it means to be great with the abuse of that greatness. Michael Jordan got away with all of it because he is that good, but it's not why he's that good. And so you have all these aspirational Jordans who are not Jordan thinking, this is what it means to be the great alpha male. I agree with most of Tori's take that, that there are way too many dudes thinking they're Jordan, but all they have to show for it is the alpha male bleephole part, which, by the way, best use of close to swear word ever. Yeah, I never thought of bleephole before. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's fun. That. Need to incorporate that into my daily life. <laughs> 
One of the takeaways, though, that The Last Dance seems to want to give us is that it's okay to be a bleephole if you're the best at whatever it is you do. If you can win six NBA championships, then you can bully Scott Burrell and punch Steve Kerr in the face, apparently. Poor Scott Burrell. I know. Poor guy. Did you guys have that reaction or am I taking away the wrong thing? Well, I think um, because a lot of this is told uh, in a Michael Jordan approved manner, uh, and we can get into that a little later uh, in in full, but you're seeing it from Jordan's perspective and a key part of the Jordan mythos that he's been telling us and probably telling himself is that idea that it's okay, uh, not just that it's okay to be a bleephole if if you win, but also that him being a bleephole was necessary for the team to win. And there, you know, he says a lot of times like, uh, you know, I dragged people along when they didn't want to come for the ride. And I had to be hard on these guys because I, you know, that's what it takes to win. And so I think because you're seeing this documentary in a lot of ways, retell the Jordan story from Jordan's own point of view and his worldview you're getting that ingrained in all of the times that the it comes up that he was hard on his teammates and and generally a bleephole i mean to me i always knew that jordan was a huge bleephole and that is just part of his character in many ways that is his personality um and anyone who's ever encountered him you know will probably get to know that pretty quick whether that you have to be, you don't have to be like that. That's certainly true because there's a lot of people who are not like that who are very successful. You know, LeBron James is not like that, for instance. Um, but there are a few notorious people like this in sports. Barry Bonds, you know, would be right up there. Um, same sort of thing. Um, but I think the point is that, that nine times out of ten, that's not going to work great in the locker room. Um, you you really do have to perform on the court to make that work. But even watching, I thought it was fascinating just watching him around the locker room with this great 98 footage and just seeing how everyone was like, like kind of like didn't really ever get totally comfortable with him. Like, you know, there was just always this layer of awkwardness, except for, you know, like the security guard and a couple people who were really close to him, like, it, 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 like no one was like dying to like chum it up with him. Um, and I think it was, I think it in many ways it, it did paint a somewhat rosier picture of, of, of how tough he was to, to work with. Yeah. I, I thought you could tell a lot from what some of the players didn't say the way they like very carefully talked about him. Steve Kerr's interviews, everything he said about George, it was like, there was, there was like, they were being very careful to only go so far and not, cross that line because he still has that kind of power. Also, this was, you know, his project. And I think also, I mean, the aspect of having the cameras there, you could kind of tell that the players were aware of the cameras being there. And that was probably true in some capacity, even if it wasn't for this particular camera crew, just as a matter of being Michael Jordan's teammate on the Bulls, you knew you were in like much more of a fishbowl and everything was going to be scrutinized and everything, you know, was being recorded or documented. And that's why, yeah, it seemed very weird. Jordan seemed isolated, uh, you know, at times. It must have been annoying as hell to be, you know, a teammate of Jordan because he was just constantly like he would not stop talking and sort of everything that came out of his mouth was like arrogant and narcissistic and, you know, trying to kind of bully people. Uh, and you saw all of that. Uh, and, and the way he came off was just like very straight, you know, he was kind of a weird guy, uh, and, and seemed like very unpleasant to spend any amount of time with. I, I just think the truth is, and I think we probably all know people like this, that he just wasn't good at friendships. It sounds really basic in like kindergarten level, but that's in many ways the truth. So in that moment with Kerr where uh, he's asked if, you know, did you ever talk about this shared connection you have with what happened to your fathers? And he's just kind of like, no, of course we never, you know, we never got (laughs) personal. Like there wasn't a lot of, um, you know... he he closed he closed himself off um in in a lot of ways to other people but part of that is also you know you can't really criticize because of this otherworldly fame he had which is very clearly uh documented that that's a drain where everyone you talk to is is 
is mobbing you or wants something. So I, I think like very few people, you know, on the planet Earth can ever relate to that. But but certainly his his personality is is clear. Yeah, and that and that's the Jordan that you know we ended up coming away with from this. It's not a different Jordan than we've known about or seen over the years it was he was given this opportunity you know especially with the control that he had over the footage and and ultimately in shaping the narrative to tell his story and it ended up being basically the same myth of jordan that we've heard versions of for many decades maybe there is no larger message to michael jordan because it seemed like especially when you contrasted you know the the moments from his career and the way that he clung to any kind of petty feud that he had with different players that came up, you know, throughout his career uh, up to and including his, his own hall of fame speech was just littered with, you know, his own, you know, his, his pettiness uh, against some of the people that he perceived as standing in his way over the years. And then you had him in his like lavish, uh, house looking out over the ocean with you know his cigars and his his uh, bourbon or whatever that was uh, and I I kind of did feel sort of sorry for him because it was like that's all there is with Michael Jordan at the end you know he had 10 hours to tell the story of it and all you come away with is you have a guy that is is just you know all that there was for him was the pettiness and the the drive to succeed. And then now just kind of looking back at those victories and still seeming sort of unsatisfied or incomplete or somehow, you know, kind of uh, unfulfilled by all of it. The, the pettiness seems so beneath him. Like you don't need to, when you're the best who's ever played, you don't need to like tear down Gary Payton or Brian like, Russell or yeah, like any yeah. of these guys. I mean, especially that, especially like Brian Russell, but also not the other stars. Like that's just, that's so weird. It's like chanting overrated to the team. You just Ugh, beat. like the you beat them. Don't you the want them worst. to be properly rated? <laughs> so that is the worst chant in the world. And they so chant because it it's hard because it's mean. It hurts. Right. Uh, um, but, but I think Jordan's and he does he admits this and and actually he you know I've always you know assumed the worst with it when it came to his gambling but it was interesting when he t- framed his gambling as his just competitive competitive yeah, I don't have a gambling problem I have a competition yeah. problem and I think that is right to the core of this I mean the guy is in his his level of, of competitiveness is almost uh, insane I mean talking about being bitter because Carl Malone won MVP one year and like it, it just everything was about a vendetta and it was it was really just like the jet fuel that was behind him were these little grudges and the little slights. I mean, it, it kind of, in many ways kind of made him, but to make it so like personal, almost it's like that, that guy's not as good as me. And I'm going to tell everyone about that right now. Like that, that just seems so, so beneath him. I thought, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And I keep coming back to the hall of fame speech because that to me was that actually told you as much about Jordan or more than you got out of the 10 hours of this documentary, you know, and I think in this, because of Jordan's own image making, you know, you, you, we almost came around to concocting the narratives about Jordan or letting him concoct his narratives about himself specifically just because he was, so great at basketball and won so much that you almost like it, it, it demands a, uh, a narrative to kind of underlie it, even if one is not necessarily fully there um, already. Uh, and, and it talked about the, the undeniability of needing to sort of tell a story about an athlete when they win so much that you could be the worst person <laughs> Uh, or even be sort of like boring beyond, you know, I don't know that Jordan had a lot to say beyond his vendettas and beyond his competitive drive that, that, you know, is he a fundamentally interesting person even? I mean, he's a person that had a lot of interesting things happen to them, but I don't know if, you know, as a, as a human being, he necessarily is even that interesting, but we had to make him interesting because he just refused to stop winning championships basically 
and that I think is also telling, but you ha- still have to read that between the lines of the documentary too. You know, you mentioned that the 2009 um, Hall of Fame speech, and I, I think even just as um, interesting about that, if you go back to that, was who introduced him was David Thompson, um, who was the number one overall pick, went to NC State. But it's like, you know, they weren't contemporaries. Um, he was seven or eight years older. They never played together at NC State. It, it wasn't Dean Smith. It wasn't even you know, worthy or someone from college. It wasn't Pippen. It wasn't Jackson. It was someone, you know, who wasn't even in his orbit. And that's who, you know, had this key introduction to, to bring Jordan on into the Hall of Fame. So and it is somewhat telling, I think. It, it shows that he, he burned a lot of bridges, I think, or or he was, <laughs> he, he closed a lot of bridges, you know. <laughs> I, I, I don't, I'm not sure they were even there to begin with. Um, but he was the Chris Christie of interpersonal exactly. <laughs> relations exactly wow. <laughs> let's talk more about the the concept of this documentary itself so in the end credits of each episode on the first page of executive producers are the names curtis polk and sd portnoy that's jordan's business ma- partner and business manager but you have to know who they are to understand really that jordan is in control of this Jump 23, his production company, isn't listed next to, like, the millions of production companies that are. ESPN, Netflix, NBA, even the Mandalay Sports Media has this big, splashy page, but there's nothing from Jump 23 there. Jeff, what is that about? Why why hide Jordan's involvement? There's a certain degree of phoniness to this kind of documentary, obviously. This is not investigative reporting. Um, This is not... They're not trying to break news here. They're not trying to dig up dirt. They're not trying to, you know, make waves or retell history or give hidden histories. You know, it's all consent. And I think, you know, it, the optics look a little better than Michael Jordan, executive producer. I think um, it, it's kind of obvious why you wouldn't want to have that. You'd want to hide that a little bit. But but to be sure, you know, they had approval approval rights on all this. Um, but the interesting thing about that, you brought up the Sam, Neil, you brought up the Sam Smith book and, and in the episode where they talk about that and they talk about the Atlantic city thing, he said in the process of making that book, he understood that they had to, he had to give a little dirt. Like he had to have a little controversy to make the book work, which is very telling considering like he's making a documentary about his life. And he knows he's smart enough to know that this documentary is not going to work if it's completely whitewashed and completely, you know, sugarcoated and no, not a bad word about there. So he did, you know, he did talk about the gambling stuff. He did talk about, you know, some of the off court friction with, with various players. And, and, and I think that you could say what you will about, you know, what he didn't say and, and all the stuff in the subtext. But there was a certain realness to this that gave it a feel like a documentary that obviously had more, you know, journalistic endeavors. Yeah, I I, I agree with you. Although I will say the Atlantic City thing, like, was (laughs) sort of brushed off as like, well, I just need to let off some steam. You went, you wanted a gambling bender in the middle of a playoff series. Like, that's not, that's, that's crazy like that's a, that should have been a big deal as big of a deal as Rodman going and <laughs> going and wrestling in the middle of a playoff series right like that just seemed like that was like oh it's just it's no big deal but he own, I guess my point is is that he owned it he said yeah I went you know I was back by 11 or whatever you know it, it, I, I need to get out of the city and I was kind of like oh okay I get it <laughs> Even though and, he was seen in the casino at like two AM, so you know. but that, but that's his story. Like, who, we, there could be more to that story than we know. There could be more to a lot of these stories than we know. There could be more to the retirement. They could be more to his father's murder. That, that just wasn't this documentary, you know. At times, the the director Jason Hare has said, "Oh, well, this isn't a Jordan biopic. This is about the '98 Bulls, but Jordan is the star because he was the best player on that, and so." We're not going to touch on everything, Jordan, because it's not his story. He's just central to the 98 Bulls story. But most of the time, it sure feels like a Michael Jordan uh, biography. And so I think part of that is also where it sort of straddles this line between, is it a documentary or is it just sort of a, a, a vanity piece for Jordan's own 
way of telling the story of his career hit on his terms. He also says, like, I can't wait to get out of this life. I'm done. I'm finished with this. I hate this. You wouldn't want to be me. Everybody says they want to be Michael Jordan. Try being Michael Jordan for a year. You know, so I think he has always wanted to have it kind of both ways and he gets to have it a lot of different ways, even in this documentary. And part of that is goes to those criticisms that people have had about this being his story wrapped up in the packaging of a 30 for 30 or some kind of, you know, serious piece of journalism. Yeah, I think that's right. Did we learn anything new though? I guess that's, that's what I come back to on this, whether it's a, you know, a piece of journalism or not. Um, you know, we all, I think people really enjoyed watching it. It was fun to watch this together, given that we don't have live sports right now. There was a conversation going on around it that was fun to be a part of. But did we learn anything new about Jordan, about the Bulls team that we, that helps our understanding of what that all meant? You know, the the comparison to OJ Made in America is inevitable and uh, impossible to live up to. But that was a story about so much more than the central subject. And this was a story about almost so much less than the central subject where y- you just end up sort of coming away. And uh, I, I, I don't know whether there is more to Jordan than what we had gotten to see through that. I mean, that's sort of the ultimate thing that you, you kind of come away from uh, with the realization that it's like, Jordan was a the best basketball player ever. I've written about that and made that case. Uh, and it still, you know, even holds up now compared with people like LeBron. And maybe that's enough. We also have to keep in mind that we might not be the, or probably aren't the target audience for this. I mean, there are a lot of people who watch this. And the reason I think it got such a reaction, um, you know, quarantine aside, which was obviously a huge factor, um, was that, you know, there were a lot of people younger than us um, who didn't know all all this story and didn't know a lot of these details. Um, even even the, the pizza poisoning versus the, you know, a lot of people know about the flu game. But to reframe that as, you know, the the poison pizza was news just based on, you know, the Twitter reaction. I mean, that story has obviously been out there for a while. You know, that's not that wasn't they weren't actually breaking news there. But you got to think that this was catered. This wasn't catered to even, you know, basketball super nerds. It it was really a a generalist piece. But I I agree with everything that was said about it. it. It does conveniently align itself with how he wants to be perceived. So I think that's a good spot to leave this. There was a, obviously a lot to talk about within the 10 hours of the documentary. Um, and it, and I think, you know, it, it served its purpose in that it brought people together to talk about sports in a time when we could all use that. And so that I think is super important. Um, and it made us reexamine someone who obviously has had a lot of influence over the game of basketball and pop culture at large. So in that, in those ways, it definitely did its job. All right, now for a word from this week's sponsor, Allbirds. Something that's very cool about Allbirds, especially now when we're thinking about this massive global challenge we're all in the middle of, is its commitment to reducing its carbon footprint for all of its products and eventually offsetting them to zero. A lot of people have been finding solace in maintaining their sanity during this time through exercise, especially running, along with taking all of the right precautions and social distancing, what if you could know what your carbon footprint is right on the actual footprint of your shoe? Well, our friends at Allbirds have done that and made something that can help you get out and exercise more with their latest shoe, the Tree Dasher. The Dasher is the first shoe of its kind, a truly sustainable running shoe made from natural materials that delivers high-level running performance. Allbirds also printed the Dasher's carbon footprint right on the shoe so you know its impact on the planet. Then they offset that footprint to zero to make it a carbon neutral product. I have very much been enjoying my pair of dashers. They look really cool in this awesome orange color and they're super comfy. You'd never know that they came from all natural materials. They're just natural. With the new Allbirds Tree Dasher, feel confident knowing that you can run hard and tread lightly on the planet. Find your pair at allbirds.com today. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. 
The NFL's owners are meeting today virtually, and we'll discuss two proposals aimed at increasing the diversity in its coaching ranks. One of those plans would reward teams that hired a minority coach by improving their draft picks in various ways. The other would change the rule that allows a club to block its assistant coaches from interviewing for coordinator positions with other teams. According to the NFL Network, the league already intends to enhance its Rooney rule to require that teams interview at least two external minority candidates for a head coach opening and one minority candidate for any coordinator job. Stephen A. Smith had this to say about those proposals on ESPN's first take. I love it. I don't love the particulars. I don't love the specifics. It's a gimmick. It's a gadget. I mean, it's no plan, no real thought to it whatsoever. We get that. So that's not why I'm saying I love it, because this wouldn't work. You don't want to be a black man hired under these conditions because you would be the epitome of what they call an affirmative action hire. Somebody that they deemed unqualified for the position that just got it because of this. Um, and, and you definitely would be excoriated, at least privately, within NFL circles. No black coach wants to be hired under those conditions. So in regards to that, that certainly would not be the case. Uh, but the reality is, is that if you think about why I love it so much, I love that it provokes the conversation. Jeff, is this wouldn't work, but I love it, the right take on this plan? I think it's a complicated question. Um, it's obviously a major problem in the NFL. And uh, we've talked about this on previous um, shows that uh, I personally believe that the problem, it goes beyond the NFL and it, it goes you know, to the lower levels of college, high school football. Um, and this is really just the most marquee example of it. Um, but me personally, this I think the Rooney rule is broken. So obviously something needs to change. But what they seem to be doing is almost kind of, you know, doubling down on it by now adding, you know, before it was more, you know, punitive, like you get punished if you broke the rule. But now it's like incentivizing um, this approach to hiring practices um, that to me, it just makes it so transactional that it just in many ways misses the entire point of what it's trying to of the problem it's trying to fix yeah it's almost like the the right take is not this wouldn't work but i love it it's this might work some but i hate it yeah exactly (laughs) yeah that's better i like that better yeah i mean i don't know that we need the conversation to be started the conversation is ongoing but but this is a systemic problem yeah we're trying to fix it with things at the end of the process instead of fixing the system that is broken. Now, maybe the, I mean, we've been trying to fix a system of racism for ever. And I mean, that's obviously a tough task for the NFL to solve, but there are, there's a system in place here in the NFL that they don't seem to realize that they have more control over. Neil, you worked on a piece not too long ago with our colleague Perry Bacon Jr. about ways that the NFL could improve diversity in its coaching ranks. Could the proposals on offer today actually work in in within that system? Well, I mean, the one of our um, suggestions in our five part plan uh, was that the the Rooney rule be extended to the coordinator level, which is one of the proposals. So I think that that part is good. But when we looked at things, we looked at basically what's the path that someone takes to get to be a head coach to begin with. And if you look at it, that most current head coaches follow a very standard path to the top where they played in college most didn't play in the pros. And that's part of the problem uh, because, you know, you have a league that has a lot of African-American players and it's almost held against them the longer they play because they don't get to have that head start toward being a coach. But then, you know, you move on from being a college player to being like a college assistant or coordinator. Then you become an NFL assistant, eventually you become an NFL coordinator, and then finally you become a head coach. And often by your mid forties, that's where you get to it. So, you know, we looked at where along each of those signposts on that path to becoming a coach, how do you improve the rate of having minority coaches in that pipeline? And so, you know, something that looks down the the line and, and tries to incentivize teams to at least, if not hire, interview minority candidates along those paths and maybe make it easier for ex-players to get their foot in the door as a coach and and make that transition more seamless. 
uh, and also reduce the amount of nepotism because we often see Sean McVay's dad was a front office executive. Uh, Kyle Shanahan's dad was one of the winningest head coaches of all time. You have these guys that, yeah, they are successful head coaches and they're very young, but they got their opportunity because of these connections that they had that really aren't available to most people. And especially not if, if we have a minority coaching, uh, you know, a, a dearth of minority coaches, then it stands to reason that they're not going to be the sons of many minority <laughs> coaches in the pipeline to take advantage of the nepotistic connections that some of these other guys have. When you get down to the idea of basically bribing teams to hire black coaches as though they needed, you know, it almost implicitly tells and sends this message that, well, they're not actually as good as the whitehead coaches, so we need to sweeten the deal in order to convince you to hire them. That's obviously a terrible message to send, and it's also not true. I think something that uh, th- that that gave black coaches, head coaches, more of a chance to fail uh, it, it would would be more. Uh, you know, addressing the problem than trying to kind of sweeten the deal to get them hired in the first place. Because another thing that we found in our research was blackhead coaches that get fired have a much lower rate of getting rehired again, of being given a second chance. Most head coaches for the first time, they fail in their first uh, spot and, and they need some time to figure things out. Uh, so addressing those types of things would go a lot further toward kind of fixing this problem than some kind of gimmick where you you almost like imply that well these are inferior coaches and we have to trick you into uh into hiring them and it's a catch-22 because if somebody is hired under these circumstances and then they succeed then you can say well they had an unfair advantage because they had a better draft pick you know it's it's very sort of like circular and self-defeating and damned if you do and damned if you don't uh as as a rule you know and this is also you know part of that a lot of this is an offense and defense thing too um which is goes back a, a long ways and goes to the you know earliest foundations of football you know not that long ago the idea of a black quarterback was pretty strange you know when randall cunningham was out there it was it was unusual now look at the league patrick mahomes deshaun watson dak prescott kyler murray all these guys and i think there are a lot of you know and a lot of this is is you know with the coach the recent hires has to deal with you know these guys are targeting offensive coaches rather than defensive minded coaches well black black coaches are more traditionally defensive coaches that's because you know black players are traditionally pushed into defense and i think a lot of this you know might be changing but the the coaching in many ways because you do it at a farther point in your career is a is a lagging indicator so i do think like things will change eventually and it you know it and it again it starts at the player level and sort of then trickles down to the coaching level but um this is also a copycat league where you know people don't usually like to think outside of the box until they see someone else think outside of the box and then they try to copy that. So <laughs> then everyone's outside the box. We don't yeah. know what the box is anymore. <laughs> so there, there, there isn't a lot of creativity and imagination. And I think part of that makes these owners or these, you know, front offices go to what they know has worked in the past, which is makes change very uh, slow in, in, at the highest level of the game. But like, it was well documented at the time that Cliff Kingsbury was a mediocre. I think he had a losing record as a college coach and then immediately was, was promoted to becoming the head coach of an NFL team, by the way, at a black head coach's expense from the year before uh, when there were tons of more qualified people. I mean, you know, even something that was just, you have to uh, X number of black head coaches have to be hired before the first mediocre white college head coach with a losing <laughs> career record can be hired by a team. I mean, it's really just, you know, it, it's ludicrous when you kind of look at some of these examples and they are based, like you mentioned, Jeff, the the copycat nature of it, where it's like Sean McVay, let's get a lot of guys that uh, share some attributes, including being young and white with Sean McVay as our, as our next head coach. And it's like, well, why aren't black coaches ever the fad? You know, like what do we have to do to get that to be the fad that then every team follows? And that's, you know, sort of part of it too. Yeah. I think it was, I mean, the thing that 
that put it over the edge this past offseason was that Eric Bieniemy, the offensive coordinator in Kansas City, this great Kansas City offense, you know, explosive offense scoring a million points, and he didn't get hired. And it's like, there's always an excuse, right? Well, oh, well, Andy Reid, this is really Andy Reid's offense. Well, who, I mean, it's being run by this guy who did not get hired, and yet Cliff Kingsbury has a job. And that, I mean, there's always going to be an excuse. And that's why in some ways having some sort of system, I mean, the, the Rooney rule can't fix everything on its own, but having like, you have to interview, you have to interview someone. You can't just grab the first person who looks exactly like you, Mr. White GM, and and go with that. You have to interview more people. I think does help. And it, and we saw that it helped in the when it was first implemented. At least we saw a spike in minority coaches. I mean, maybe doubling the number of candidates you have to interview from one to two, but still that's doubling. Maybe that will help just by forcing you to look at other people or or will that not matter? And will people still just have the idea of what they want and go with it? I, I'm actually way more optimistic on the enemy thing, because I actually do believe that he didn't get that job. He, he wasn't offered a head coaching job. Not It wasn't because of racism, per se. I do actually sort of buy into some of those excuses, especially that maybe not the Andy Reid one, but that, you know, the fact that the team went to the Super Bowl and it makes the hiring process very difficult. I mean, that in and of itself is crazy, right? Like guys who take their teams to the Super yeah. Bowl, you'd think would be first in line. I mean, that they're not changing that hiring process at all, right? They're not saying no hires before the Super Bowl, which is another thing they could do. I, I mean, the Panthers owner literally fired Ron Rivera early so that he would be in a good position to interview for other jobs. I mean, a part of this is the NFL calendar at play. And I do think Biannimi will get a head coaching job. And I actually think it's it's a good thing that he's had so much success as offensive coordinator because there are very few black offensive coordinators. So now a team might, in the nature of the copycat league, might be more willing to take take on a black offensive coordinator, which means that will eventually affect the, um, you know, the diversity of the, of the head coaching ranks. Neil, what, how does the NFL compare to other leagues in terms of the diversity in its coaching ranks. Well, yeah, I mean, it's not great in any league. Uh, and it, one of the things that we found that we thought was very interesting and, and, you know, perhaps not coincidental is that if you look at the four major North American sports, uh, there's two where white players are the majority and there aren't that many black players. Those are hockey and baseball. And in those, you have a lot of former players become head coaches. In fact, almost every uh, coach is a former player. But then you have two sports where uh, at least former players at the at the pro level. Um, you have the other two major sports where black players are in the majority in the NBA and the NFL. And you see players that didn't, you know, didn't play in the pros dominate the head coaching ranks, you know, more, more often become head coaches. And it's kind of interesting where it's like, Hmm, is that a coincidence where you have owners who are overwhelmingly white, uh, GMs that are overwhelmingly white. And, you know, it's sort of like when it serves people who are like them, they value the playing experience, but when it serves other people, they sort of downplay the, the playing experience and how that translates to being a coach. So I don't, think that that's coincidental and it may not even be intentional it may just be some kind of unconscious bias that they have when making these decisions but it is a pattern that that exists okay so there have been attempts maybe we're not thrilled with the attempts but the nfl has made attempts to try to deal with this what if if you guys had a magic wand what would you do to fix coaching in the nfl well, I would do a lot of the things that we talked about in that story that I mentioned earlier, which start looking down the pipeline in terms of having um, interview requirements and uh, try to fill the coordinator ranks, the position coach ranks, you know, basically down the line uh, to seed the, the pipeline of coaches with more black candidates that then you know, can get hired to become head coaches when it's sort of their turn. And I think also, yeah, I mean, 
I don't know. Maybe you guys disagree with the idea, but I do think that having some kind of hierarchy where it's like you can't pass over coordinators to hire, you know, somebody that you happen to like that had a losing record at Texas Tech or somebody that you happen to like that was like this. Just for instance, just hypothetically, you know, or who was like the special teams coach for, you know, some other team that just blew you away in the interview or something like that. Like you shouldn't, it's it's a fine line because it's like, well, there's going to be a lot of people that say these owners own the team. They can make whatever decisions they want with the team. But like, let's be honest, most head coaches fail anyway. For all we talk about the whiteness among the coaching ranks, look at the, I mean, there's only two um, principal owners of, of color. You know, Kim Pagula is Asian American, Shad Khan who's Pakistani American. Um, and otherwise it's, it's, the major it's white males and i think changing that obviously from the top down would would have a huge impact but again this that, that part of the equation is is not unique to the nfl at all I, this and that's like that goes to society at large like who is getting rich enough to buy a football team in america right now well it's disproportionately white men you know so it makes sense that that would uh trickle down to football and i don't know you know the nfl can only do so much to fix society at large but they can make small things about their um you know their process once it gets to their own pipeline of coaches yeah i think that like fixing the ownership is actually something we could only do with a magic wand we can't probably do that in actual real life well you did say magic wand so i, I did no you answered you. the question yeah, yeah no no that was that you answered it appropriately well, I'm not sure we came up with a solution, but I also don't know how we could have given the history of this problem. So, I mean, I'm 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 happy that the NFL is trying to take some steps and we'll see how they they plan pan out. And maybe Stephen A. Smith is right that the important part is the continued conversation. All right, we will leave this discussion there. We'll take a break and then we'll be back with our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. This week, we are delighted to be joined by 538 copy editor Santul Nerker, who's done some deep diving into the world of cricket. Hi, Santul. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you guys doing? You know, not too bad. (laughs) Excited to hear about some cricket. Yeah. Yeah. So you just wrote a piece up on the site right now about a cricket superstar. Who were you looking at and what did you find? So I took a look at the career of former Indian captain Mahindra Singh Dhoni. Um, And so as a quick uh, introduction into who he was or who he is, he is the longest standing captain in Indian history. And so he played the position of wicketkeeper, which is roughly equivalent to uh, catcher in baseball. Um, and he sort of took India, Indian cricket through this time of kind of uncertainty and guided them through uh, a number of championships, a lot of wins, and ended up being their most successful captain in team history. And basically because of COVID-19 now, he might be done playing. His captaining days had been done for a while, but he might not get like a real send off as, as a result of this. Um, and many cricket fans or cricket purists wouldn't probably think of him in like the the annals of all time great cricketers. Uh, his technique was sometimes kind of rough. He didn't have the same batting average as the best players uh, in all of history. But despite all that, he led India through a lot of uh, great successes, and he's probably not going to play another game now. So I thought that was uh, something worth investigating. And I was surprised to see how, like, how many individual records he actually held or was at least in, like, the top five or ten of. Um, and his career, and if you think about it, is kind of similar to how uh, Roger Federer or Serena Williams or how even how Vince Carter have seen their careers kind of uh, put on hold. At least with Vince Carter, we probably think that's his last game. Um, so I thought it was interesting from the standpoint of, a player who's probably done playing the way we've seen him play. So Donnie isn't isn't the 
um, like the premier Indian cricket player that you would think of, right, in the history of Indian cricket, which is obviously long and storied. Right, yeah. So the greatest Indian cricket player of all time, arguably the greatest cricket player of all time, is a guy named Sachin Tendulkar. And so he retired from cricket about uh, six, seven years ago. And he was, he started playing cricket from the age of 16. He, like basically think of like a cricketing Tiger Woods. So like was really uh, had international acclaim, like within India was like revered for his prowess. But the funny thing about him was that he was not a good captain. So when he was captain of India, I believe in the 90s, India was really not very good. And so then he went back to his normal duties as just like as an opening batsman, as middle order batsman, and was like really good at that and still probably the greatest cricket player of all time. And nobody would ever put Dhoni in the same sentence as him. But at the same time, he was didn't have the leadership qualities. He was not like the sort of uh, he was not the steady hand that the country or t- uh, team had. So I thought it was interesting from the standpoint of here's a guy who's really, really good at what he does, but he's not a leader and he's not, he's not the, he's not the steady hand that's going to lead you to a world cup perhaps. So let's see, you've got a, uh, a longtime captain who led a uh, proud franchise to multiple championships. Oh, no. is, he's, Donny is basically the Derek Jeter of, of cricket. Is that right? <laughs> well, it's interesting you say that. Um, because I think in a way it's the opposite because Derek Jeter, nobody could ever say Derek Jeter wasn't respected for what he did. But Donny actually has, you know, gotten a lot of criticism, probably because like India is so cricket obsessed that anything he does was like under a microscope. And, you know, he would you know, come out and bat pretty well, but he wouldn't be like, you know, a, a cricket purist dream. Whereas like Derek Jeter, like, you know, past all the eye test um, uh, observations, I think. And I don't think Dhoni did that. So in a sense, Dhoni is like underappreciated where maybe Jeter's overappreciated mm. uh, would be my argument. I, you know, I'm interested in Jeter's an interesting comparison because like being a captain in baseball is meaningless and yeah, doesn't, who cares? What does, what does it mean to be a captain in cricket? Oh, that's a really good question. So there are two things. One is, fielding and the other's batting. So in fielding you decide things like how the team is set up in the field and so that depends a lot on things like, you know, who is bowling, how is the ball going to carry, where do your fielders where they're going to be positioned. So the ball's in the air, uh you know, you're there to fielder to to catch it to get somebody out. Um it, you know, like in baseball you decide things like shifts and field shifts, maybe outfield shifts. But it's so much more up to the captain and cricket to decide all that. So you get some like truly weird uh, fielding formation sometimes. And then something like deciding what the batting order is, that shifts like very frequently. Um, you can like, based on like the situation in the game, the captain can decide, okay, I'm going to come in earlier now to bat than I might normally do. Because um, like, you know, one one time through the lineup is all you get per innings. So all those things are like things the captain needs to be there for and attentive to. Um, and then things like, you know, in test cricket, you can decide where you can de- declare if you've batted enough and you want to uh, give the other team a chance to bat so you can get closer to winning basically. So test batter- cricket is the long one. Test yeah. cricket is the normal one. <laughs> yes. Test cricket is the long one and the one that can end in a draw. Um, so yeah, so there's a lot more strategy that goes into cricket, I feel. Whereas, like, the captain in baseball, I do agree that it's, like, very ceremonial. And, like, I don't really understand what a captain does. <laughs> gets that gets that C on his on No his one form. does. Yeah. It sounds like the, the captain is almost more of, like, the coat. Like, a lot of stuff that um, in America we would have, like, a coach do, the captain decides in cricket. Yeah, like, I don't know what the – like, the coach in cricket seems to be more, like – from the like a training perspective, there's obviously strategy that he or she would suggest um, you should take, but the captain in cricket is like the one that's out on the field deciding all the different moves. And at the same time, he was also a wicketkeeper, which meant that he was like behind the wicket. You know, he was in a very active position. You know, he was always like fielding. It's like, it's like you know, catcher. Um, 
And so I wonder like sometimes if this, is there like a thing where wicket keepers are expected to maybe be worse batsmen in the same way that uh, catchers are? I don't know if that's actually true, but I think that he was wicket keeper, captain, and a really good batsman all in one was like pretty, pretty significant. It, your your comparison to the other athletes who might be might not you know finish their careers the way they would have liked to because of the sports shutdown is really interesting. I mean, we when we talk about Roger Federer and Serena Williams, they will play again, we assume, but might not win again, um, which maybe was why they were still playing in the first place. Doni, like it seems a little bit. It's a little bit different just because we don't we don't know for sure if he was if he's going to retire or not. But it yeah. did seem like he was on his way out one way or the other, given his age. Right. How long do cricket players usually play? So it depends on your position. So batsmen tend to play longer because uh, cricket is a physical game. But, you know, if you're batting, like you just have to, like, you know, make sure your skill doesn't atrophy. Um, for him, it's a little bit different because he was kind of like a power hitter. So because his game was not was like not predicated on as, as much skill, he had to like develop that as time went along and you know lost some of his athleticism. But he was known for his like, you know, really strong running between the wickets. That's like what uh that's what he was known for. Um whereas if you're like a a fa- like a bowler, particularly like a fast bowler, like a fast pitcher, um your career is like not as long cuz like, you know, you probably can't bowl like 90 miles an hour into your like late 30s as well um so it very much depends on the position i'd say all right well yeah it'll be interesting to see if he actually does hang it up or if he tries to come back when all this is over but if we, he has played his last match what a career yeah oh i just have another comparison joe mauer he could be a joe mauer that's oh, one yeah. for sarah yeah, yeah, that is a great one. So, yeah, do you ever, like, switch positions, like, move to whatever first base is in cricket? <laughs> so, I guess, like, for like, if you're just, like, a fielder, like, where your position as a fielder is, like, kind of, like, out there. Um, if you're more athletic, you might be, like, further in the outfield where you can, like, field balls and, like, throw. But as a wicketkeeper, that's, like, a more set position uh, because it's, like, a more of, like, a special skill and, like, you know, not – even in baseball, like positionless baseball, I don't think anybody could just like go and like play catcher. Like that's like one of the harder positions definitely to train for. So I think he's like kind of the wicketkeeper is like the exception to that rule in some sense. And not obviously not everybody can bowl because that's you know again really hard. So all right, well I think that will do it for the rabbit hole and for this week's show. Thanks everyone for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. It really does help new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil, Jeff, and Santul, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.